Why don't we begin by reading Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 to 12. So verse 1, um, even though the little heading normally starts in verse 2, we'll read verse 1. So this is Jesus with his disciples. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So it all makes sense, right? I could just sit down because it was really clear. I think we, we need God's help to understand this passage. So why don't you pray with me? Almighty God, Open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to see your son Jesus this morning, to believe and to live for you with all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, Brendan showed us this passage which was, if we really listened, quite unsettling. And he began with this question, which was, what would it mean 
for you to have lived a failed life? What would it look like for you to make a mess of your life? You see, the disciples have just been hanging out with Jesus. They've been through a couple of years' worth of ministry. They've seen amazing things. And then Jesus comes to them and says, who do the crowds say I am? And they have various answers. But then he turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, which is this Old Testament term, which means like this glorious king. So he looks at Jesus and says, you are the glorious king, the promised one, the anointed one. And he gets the right answer, but the wrong definition. You see, because Peter thought that Jesus was going to be this triumphant king, this great, amazing king that would kick out the Romans, give Israel back their sovereignty, establish the law of God back in Israel, and they were going to be at his right hand and at his left. They sort of had like a, a Donald Trump messiah. You know, that what's Donald Trump's main thing? Let's make America... Let's make America great again. You know, he says in various speeches, we're going to start winning again. We've forgotten how to win. If you vote me in, we're going to start winning again. How's he going to do it? Build a wall. Kick out the Mexicans. Sorry, Patrick. Um, We're going to not take from the Chinese. We're going to give it back to them. We're going to tell them who's boss. We're going to build the biggest army in the world and just kill everyone, basically. We're going to rule. We're going to reign. We're going to be an empire. Let's make America great again. And that's sort of how the disciples thought Jesus was going to be. They had a Donald Trump Messiah. Instead, Jesus tells them quite depressingly for the disciples. In verse 31, he says this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then he calls them. So not only is he going to go from being a Trump Messiah to a loser, he then says, and follow me in the same way. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That would have floored them. They would have been so discouraged. They've been following this guy for two years and then he just pops their little bubble. I've been watching, because, you know, election week, uh, I've been watching my favorite TV show, The West Wing. got season four out. I've been watching it this week and The West Wing's set in America. It's set in the the Oval Office uh, where the president does all of his dealings. And one of the main characters, a guy called Joshua Lyman, the deputy chief of staff, he has this great... You know, it's kind of this silly moment, but he, he's just watched his favorite baseball team lose and he's chatting to his assistant Donna and he's kind of got his feet up on the table and he rolls his sleeves up and he looks at Donna and he says this. There comes a day in every man's life and it's a hard day, but there comes a day when he realizes he's never going to play professional baseball. (laughs) The disciples are having this moment. They thought Jesus was going to be Trump. Turns out, in their eyes, he's going to be a bit of a chump. And so they're like, oh, we're never going to play professional baseball. We're never going to be in a palace. We're never going to be ruling the Romans. We're never going to be lifted up in these glorious processions. We're going to suffer 
and deny ourselves and take up our cross. And if you really listened last week and you took on the message, you might be feeling the same. It's a sobering message. It's sort of a scary message. It's not nice Christianity. Deny myself? Pretty hard in a culture of self-expression and individuality. Take up my cross? Pretty hard when we live in a culture of comfort and ease. Lose my life now? Pretty hard when we live in a YOLO, instant gratification world. Live for an unseen eternity. Really? Really? Do we really want to do this? Do we really want to obey verses 34 to 38 of Mark chapter 8? As I prepared all week, I just sensed that we really need this message. We really need this encouragement. This whole passage is designed as an encouragement for the disciples and for us. That's why it's here to recharge us, to re-courage us to live for him. So we're going to come to a mountain today and we're going to see a glorious vision of who Jesus is so that we can live all our lives for him, no matter what. So the way we're going to go about looking at this passage today, this encouragement that we need if we truly want to follow, very simple. What happened? What does it mean? I think because it's such a weird story, we really need to go through the whole thing, go up the mountain, on the mountain, down the mountain, check it out, see what happened, and then we're going to see this great encouragement and understand what it all means. So, point number one, what happened? As I've already mentioned, the, the context is that Jesus has been identified as the Christ, the suffering Messiah, and that following Christ equals suffering too. And for the disciples, this is a bit of a buzzkill. It's a downer. But then Jesus sort of gives them a glimpse of hope. If you read chapter 9, verse 1, it says this. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You can imagine that after hearing all of that, there, there'd be this sense of like, will I be one of those? I'm going to see the kingdom of God come with power. That's what we're talking about. That's what I want to see. And so you could imagine maybe them kind of, oh, who, who's going to see it? Who's going to be one of these ones before we die? Who's going to see the kingdom of God come in power? And then this whole story happens. And there's an obvious link there. But before we go into this weird story about the, the transfiguration, I just want to reach out to the doubters, to the skeptics. Um, if you're sort of a bit like skeptical of all these kind of miracle things, that's okay. It's going to get weird. Uh, so here's my advice. Just like when we go to the movies, we suspend disbelief. Because so, if you sat there the whole time questioning every part of the movie, you'd have no fun. You suspend disbelief, the soundtrack comes on, and you can just enjoy the movie. So what I want to say is, if, if you're doubting, skeptical about miracles and all that type of stuff, that's okay. Suspend disbelief. Don't let your doubts ruin a good sermon. Bring them back in, though. Use it critically, but just join the moment. Get with the disciples. Get into the story. And then, you know, turn the soundtrack off and see it for what it is and be critical and rational. 
Because if you watched Interstellar, if you've ever seen that movie, if you turn the soundtrack off, it's ridiculous. It's just slow-moving objects, the entire film. That's all it is. But you put the soundtrack on, and it's amazing. So let's turn the soundtrack on, let's get into this picture, and let's see what it has for us. So verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now that notion after six days that's the first time in mark's gospel that he has used time as a notation the whole time he's been going immediately immediately and next and next and immediately and suddenly but first time he slows down and says and after six days now there could be multiple reasons why he says that one is to link it directly to verse one which is some of you will see glory another one though is if we were jewish and i don't know if there's anyone jewish here but if you know the old script the old testament scriptures There's this story with Moses, the leader of the people of God through the Exodus. And he goes to a mountain, and the verse in Exodus chapter 24 says, and after six days, God appeared to him. So there's this link back to the Old Testament here. So Mark, if we were Jewish, he'd be kind of prepping us. We should be expecting something after six days. But also notice how he just takes Peter, James, and John. Not all the disciples, the key guys, the guys who are going to lead the church afterwards to encourage them. And then notice too that he takes them up to a high mountain. Now when I was researching this, there's various different you know, theories as to which mountain this is. Uh, some people think it was Mount Tabor, some people think uh, Mount Nabal or something like that. But there's, it's very likely that it was this mountain called Mount Hermon. I've got a picture of Mount Hermon um, up for you. It's a, it's a high mountain, okay? 9,000 foot above sea level, 11,000 foot above the valley of Jordan beneath it. So when we hear that Jesus takes his disciples up a high mountain, it's big. It's not some like hill. It's not like getting to the top um, of, I don't know, where's a mountain around here? There's not really any. Anyway, it's not, it's not <laughs> climbing the, st- the steps at Hornsby, you know, the, the convict steps, if you've done that. I had Evie and Jasper... Evie on, just on my back, Evie on my front, they're my two kids, and I was climbing up those steps. That felt like a high mountain. This is a high mountain. There's snow on it. There's snow on that place, and you can see it all around. And it's going to take them a day to climb up the thing. So by the time they get there, it's probably night, and they're seeing the sun set, and they're seeing the whole valley and the land of Israel before them. It's a beautiful sight. See, Jesus... In Christianity, it's not just a religion of the head. It's a religion of the the heart and the soul and wonder and awe. And Jesus takes his disciples to wow them. And we ought to be wowed as well this morning. I think for me, it'd be enough to just hang out on top of that mountain. That'd be pretty cool. But check out the rest of verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. Verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. This is a weird kind of thing. This is totally miraculous. There's no, you know, explanation for it. The word there is like metamorphosed. Jesus literally changes before their eyes. He goes from being normal human being, just like you and I, to this brightly shining, angelic, divine figure. So white that his clothes are emanating brightness. Uh, In Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, it says that his face shone like the sun. 
Some of the words kind of indicate glittering, like a star. So Jesus is literally like emanating, pulsating, radiating light. Now, why would light, what, what's, what's the deal with transfiguring and being full of light? Throughout the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, light and glorious light indicates divine presence. It indicates that God is there. If you journey through the whole Old Testament, you'll see it. And so in this moment, Jesus is transfigured and they're seeing and their eyes are seeing divine majesty before them. Not even Napisan Oxyaction Plus could do what Jesus has done in that moment. It's a lifting of the veil to reveal his true identity, that he is divine, human and God. Like I said, continue suspending disbelief. It's a crazy image. Imagine on top of that mountain at night time, You've just climbed the whole thing and just, he, blow, he literally, it's like a star exploding before you. The disciples would have been like, when my daughter wakes up in the morning and would turn a light on, she goes, oh, it's so blinky. Oh. The disciples would have been like that in the moment. Oh, it's so blinky. What is going on? But it would have burned an imprint in their minds peter james and john john says this later in his life he says we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only son a beautiful image of the divine presence of jesus and that's cool but then it gets even bigger check out verse four and there appeared to them elijah with moses and they were talking with Jesus. So it, it's not enough just to have like this brightly shining star of Jesus. Then two of the greatest figures of the Old Testament rock up on top of this mountain. A dude called Elijah and a guy called Moses. We've sort of heard a little bit about a Moses. Elijah was one of the prophets. He was one of the men who was given words from God and he would speak it to the people of Israel. Now these guys represent different things different commentators say different things some say moses represents the law and elijah represents the prophets could be that but at the very least both of them had conversed with god on mountains both of them had been shown god's glory on a mountain both also had famous departures from this earth moses dies on the mountain and then it says that god buries him and no one can find his grave and then Elijah, even more weirdly, doesn't die, but a chariot of fire comes from heaven and takes him back up to heaven. Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah, a great prophet, who restored the people of God to the law. And both of them as well have a link to the end times. The, the idea that you know one day God will wrap up this world and bring his glory back to it, and he, he will rule it completely and totally again. And both have a link to that. Moses was, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, says this, uh, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the, the, the Jews would have thought that prophet needs to come before the end times. And then Elijah too, we're going to see later, that the last words of the Old Testament promise that before the end of the world, Elijah will come. 
So there's lots of different reasons why Elijah and Moses might have been there. But regardless, these are two great men, heroes of the faith. Their ministry is pointed to Jesus, and then they get to be with Jesus on the mountain. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us what they were doing, uh, but in Luke's gospel it says that he was speaking to them of his departure that was about to take place in Jerusalem. So you can imagine Moses and Elijah who had waited, who'd kind of seen glimpses of what God would do. They're hanging out with Jesus and they're actually talking about him and talking about the fact that he's going to go and die on the cross. It would be sort of like for us, you know, whatever. It could have been like having Plato and Socrates or Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar, Donald Bradman and Doug Walters together, Beethoven and Mozart, maybe Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill hanging out. Your economist, John Maynard Keynes, um, and Adam Smith, Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, whatever. It would have two great heroes. And yet, and yet, notice, who's the transfigured one? Who's the glorious one? It's Jesus, not Moses, not Elijah. Jesus is the one that's shining brightly. That would have shocked them. How did this scene happen? Don't know. Miracle. There's no real explanation. We're not going to, I can't scientifically talk about it. It it falls out of the realm of that. That's the whole point. It's miraculous, supernatural, not natural. But it was epic. And it was so epic that Peter is flabbergasted. He doesn't know what to say. And instead of not knowing what to say, not saying anything, he decides I'll say something anyway. And check out verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. It's a face palm moment. It's like, oh, why did I speak? Why, why do you think Peter's speaking in this moment? Most likely, most likely, it's because he's trying to prolong the moment. In one of the other Gospels, it says that Moses and Elijah were about to depart. And then Peter's like, no, no, we'll build a tent. We'll build a tent. I'll get some leaves. We'll make a tent. We can have another tent of meeting. If you know in the Old Testament, God used to meet with his people in a thing called a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And you've got Peter going, let's make another one of those. This is a great moment. You can talk to us. We can have, you know, keep it going. Uh, If you've ever been to an amazing concert, that's the feeling I always have. I went to one at the Opera House um, in September last year seeing this guy called Sufjan Stevens and he had this song which was incredible. It's a slow song on the album and then he just blew it up. It went for like 15 minutes. It was psychotic. If you were epileptic, you would have been out because it was a strobe lights. It was building and I was just in the moment going, oh, don't let it end. That's Peter in this moment. Don't let the moment end. But that would have been tragic because if that had a stayed, if that had stayed on the mountain, Jesus would have never have got to the hill of the cross. Either way, it doesn't matter. We don't know exactly why, but Mark says in verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now consider this. Peter, the guy who says those words, is most likely the person who is feeding this information to Mark. Pretty embarrassing story. But he includes it anyway. And verse 6, some of the commentators say, and I think it's a nice expression, that it's almost like an, ap- an apology from Peter to the Savior. I did not know what to say. I was terrified. I'm sorry that I spoke. 
It's a very human moment, and, and, and it just shows, you know, like Jesus doesn't flick him off the mountain in that moment. He just shows that Jesus has patience, and, and there's many times in your life as a Christian in my life that we're going to need the patience of God because we do things and we just go, oh, what was I thinking? What was I doing? But there's grace for us still. But then, if you thought that was good, it gets even bigger. Verse 7 says this, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, like a cloud, that's kind of, you know, that's what happens on mountains. Clouds form because they're high. But this is no ordinary cloud. Again, another Old Testament link. This cloud is, is the Shekinah glory. This cloud is this weird cloud that descends on the meeting of God. Whenever God's present, this cloud seems to come. And it's this brightly fluttering, glittering cloud that is very clear, don't come into the cloud because God's here. In fact, it appears many times throughout the Old Testament. It hasn't appeared for 600 years, mind you, up until this point. Many times throughout the Old Testament. When Moses was on the mountain, the cloud was there. When the temple or the tabernacle was first inaugurated, the cloud filled it and no one wanted to enter it. So this, this cloud descends upon the disciples and descends upon Jesus and they're engulfed in it. This brightly shining crowd. Who knows what it would have looked like to be down at the bottom there, looking up at the mountain. Maybe you could have seen it. Either way, it's a direct link to the Old Testament saying, God is here. God is about to do something. And what happens? This voice says, God's very own voice, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I, I don't know if it was booming. When God appeared to Elijah, he whispered. However the voice came out, it's very clear what he's saying. He's saying not actually to Jesus. If you remember back to the baptism, God spoke to Jesus and said, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. But this time he says it to the disciples. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Maybe he's shutting Peter up. He's like, stop talking, listen to him. Perhaps it's a link back, I think, to chapter 8, verse 31, where Jesus has predicted that he will suffer and he will die. And after Jesus predicted that, Peter said, no, 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 no. He starts rebuking Jesus, like, no, you are our Trump. You are Donald Trump. You will rule. You will make Israel great again. And God's saying, no, no, listen to him. Stop talking. Stop redefining. Stop making it up. Listen to what he says. And then, verse 8. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The lights go out. The cloud disappears. The moment is over. Moses and Elijah are gone and Jesus alone remains on the mountain as if to say he's the important one. Moses is great. Elijah is great. Listen to him. Jesus only is left. Well, what a scene. Incredible, incredible experience. 
But just like all mountaintop experiences, they come to an end. And so verse 9, it says this, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. What? Say it again, Jesus. They've just seen him, like all the Old Testament thing, everything they know, the cloud, the voice, the radiance, the glory, this is my son, listen to him, he's amazing. And then Jesus says, tell no one until I've risen from the dead. Implication, I'm going to die. Implication, even though I'm the glorious one, I'm still going to die. Even though at the top of the mountain, I'm glorious, I'm going to come down the mountain and be shameful. And this shocked the disciples. It would be like Donald Trump, in all of his speeches at the end, going, P.S., I'm going to lose the election. I'm going to lose. I'm just, I'm going to lose. But in 20 years' time, I'm coming back. And then we will make America great again. Keep giving. Keep supporting. Keep hoping. Don't give up hope. But I'm going to lose this election. Check out verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They don't get it. They still don't get it. What is this rising from the dead? In Old Testament Jewish scriptures, they had this idea of a general resurrection where everyone rises from the dead, but not a singular person rising from the dead. And certainly not the Messiah, the the glorious king. And they, they don't really talk to Jesus about it. They talk about themselves. But there's this great quote and I think Jesus, this is what Jesus is getting at here. But in Donald English's commentary, it says this. There is no way rightly to understand who Jesus is until one has seen him suffer, die, and rise again. What Jesus is saying here is, you're not going to get it. Don't tell anyone about the vision because they're not going to get it. You don't get it. It's not going to make sense until you see me suffer. Christianity doesn't make sense until you see the cross. It's just a nice religion with a few party tricks until you see the cross. Then it makes sense. But this gets them thinking. This gets them thinking. Because they know, like the Old Testament has these predictions of Elijah coming, and they've just seen Elijah. And so in verse 11, they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So in in that period of Israel's history, God hadn't spoken in the Bible since Malachi, the prophet, uh, so 600 or four to 600 years, something like that. And this tradition of Pharisees and scribes had risen up and they came up with all these extra teachings and ideas and they would explain the Bible because no prophet had arisen. And one of their teachings was that Elijah first must come. And the, the disciples are like, is that true? We just saw Elijah. Does that mean the end of the world is coming? I'll read to you Malachi verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6 so you can see where they got it from, where they got the idea. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike them, strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so in verse 12, Jesus actually says, yeah, 
Verse 12 says this, Elijah does come first to restore all things. You got it right. Elijah does come first. But then he comes back at them. Because perhaps they were thinking, Elijah, end times, maybe we don't have to do the whole suffering part. Maybe we can just skip the suffering and just go straight to the restoration and bring down the glory of God and we'll just we'll skip the suffering. But then Jesus says this. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Elijah does come first, Jesus says, but he already has come. It's not stated here explicitly, but Jesus is basically saying, John the Baptist was Elijah. He came to prepare the way for me. He came to restore the people of God, a spiritual restoration, not a physical restoration. John the Baptist came seeking repentance, bringing people's hearts ready, supple, ready to hear my message. That's Elijah coming. But they did to him whatever they pleased. The story of John the Baptist is that King Herod, his wife, didn't like John the Baptist because John the Baptist kept on telling him, you shouldn't be sleeping with your brother's wife. Um, You shouldn't be married to her. And so she gets John the Baptist beheaded and killed. And Jesus is sort of saying here, just like John the Baptist suffered, and he was Elijah, so the Son of Man will suffer many things. So, we have the scene of the mountain, the transfiguration. I think there's a good summary of it by William Lane in his commentary. He says this, The episode provides a personal and preliminary revelation that he whom the disciples follow on a way marked by suffering and humiliation is the Son of Man whose total ministry has cosmic implications. Mark has painted a picture. On the mountain, glorious, amazing Jesus, the Son of God, listen to him. Jesus only, greater than Moses and Elijah, greater than the law and the prophets, greater than anything in the Old Testament. Listen to him. But then down the mountain, the high is over and the suffering will come. It's a paradox. It's this collage of glory and suffering. So what does it all mean? Why is this great story here? I mean, we could end it here. It's a cool story. Like, it's just on its own merit. There's, it's, it's well written. It's got great links back to the Old Testament. But what does it mean for us today? What did it mean for the disciples then? Well, I think Mark has one simple thing in mind. Encouragement. This whole drama unfolds before these three disciples for the express purpose of encouraging them. You see, if you look back through the whole story, it's written to them. Everything happens to them. Jesus takes the disciples, three of them. He's transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear before them. The voice speaks to them. The glory is before them. Jesus alone is with them. They go down the the mountain with Jesus. It's all for them. 
Jesus would have been encouraged, yes, but it's for them. And so, by implication, it's for us too, to encourage us. And the encouragement is this. That although he will suffer, he truly is the glorious Messiah. He wants to encourage his disciples that in order to truly follow Jesus, we need a glorious vision of who he really is. So I've got two questions to apply for us today. Two questions. What does it all mean? First question is this. Are you seeing Jesus for who he really is? What is your vision of Jesus? How big is your Jesus, you could say? Well, for those, again, Skeptical, doubters, seekers, discouraged. This is not written as a myth, this story. It might be a myth, you might think that, but it's not written as a myth. It is written as a historical description of something that actually happened. It's not a Greco-Roman God myth. It's an eyewitness account. Peter later writes this about this very scene in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter recalls this scene, and 30 years later, he's writing, I saw it, I saw the glory, and I'm still following him today. It wasn't a myth, it isn't just a legend, it really happened. He really is the majestic Messiah. He really is the Son of God. But whatever you believe about Jesus, it's likely that if you are doubting or discouraged, on the brink of tapping out, giving up, giving in, it's likely that if that's the case for you, that your view of Jesus has shrunk. How quickly Jesus shrinks after Sunday. How quickly it is on Monday morning when you're back at work. Jesus, what? He's so small. When you're punching out work, you've got to get done when there's pressure on you. How quickly Jesus shrinks when you're trying to study and all you care about is getting a mark, getting a grade. How quickly Jesus shrinks when you're at home with the kids and you're just, you know, cleaning poo and all that type of stuff. He shrinks. It's like, really? He's the glorious one of majesty? But I'm doing this. Like, he's small. And this whole passage is here to open our eyes and give us a bigger vision. God wants us to see Jesus transfigured, verse chapter, uh, chapter 2. Radiant and glorious and shining. Verse 7, God wants us to see him in the cloud. The beloved son, listen to him. Verse 8, God wants us to see Jesus only. This whole passage is here to give us a glorious vision of Jesus. 
so that when we're tempted to redefine his mission like Peter was? Suffering? No. Sacrifice? No. When we're tempted to just listen to other voices? When we're tempted to forget, walk away, plow on with our life and come back to Jesus next Sunday? This passage is here to lift your gaze. Glorious vision of who he is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. Are you seeing Jesus clearly? What's clouding your vision? What doubts do you have? What fears do you have? What questions do you have? We know from the rest of Mark's gospel that this is just one part of the journey for the disciples. It doesn't take long, and in the rest of chapter 9, Patrick is going to preach, oh no, Brenda's going to preach on, they go back to thinking the Trump Messiah. If you're doubting, God doesn't want you to walk away with your doubts, he wants you to walk to him. Ask him that question. If you, if Jesus has become small in your eyes, ask God to make him bigger again. Because in order to truly follow Jesus, we need a glorious vision of who he really is. Not moral philosopher Jesus, not social activist Jesus. Those things are true and good. Son of God Jesus, transfigured Jesus, glorious Jesus, greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, fulfilling the whole Old Testament. That's the Jesus that will sustain you to the end. Secondly, the second question I have, seeing as though this passage is an encouragement, it's meant to encourage us to keep going. So in light of this glorious vision of who Jesus really is, are you prepared to follow him? Are you prepared to do it? Are you prepared to lay down your life Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Timothy Keller writes in his book, King's Cross, this. As he takes up a cross, we must do the same. As the cross and glory are linked in his life, so the cross and glory will be linked in our lives. See, this whole passage is designed, you go up the mountain, see him glorious. You go down the mountain, you see him suffering. And Jesus is saying, and follow me in that too. Jesus predicts that he's going to suffer. And he calls his disciples to follow him in suffering. To you to follow him. For me to follow him. To lay down our lives. Yes, he is glorious, the son of God. And yes, he will suffer. You see, in God's eternal plan, suffering comes before glory. Suffering comes comes before glory. James Edwards says in his commentary, the road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. It's like going to the gym. I know some of you love going to the gym. If you don't, that's fine. But you'll know this. Pain now gains later, right? When you go to the gym, if you give up after one rep, you get nothing. You have to literally break down your muscles and tear them 
for them to be rebuilt and for you to get that glorious buff body or whatever you want from it. Pain now, glory later. Suffering first, glory later. And in the transfiguration, we have this beautiful before and after picture. It's sort of a taste of the after. It's just a taste. It's a brief moment on top of the mountain. They don't stay there, do they? But the disciples are encouraged. They see, yes, he actually is who we thought he was. He really is the Son of God. It's not a joke. It's not a myth. God spoke to us and said, listen to him. And if we follow him, when he's resurrected, we'll see his glory. And when he comes back, we will see his glory. It's the after. The going down the mountain, it's the before. It's in the gym, busting it out. So returning to the original question, what would it mean for you to have lived a failed life, to make a mess? For the disciples, it would have been this, suffering, not being in the palace, not ruling, not reigning. No professional baseball for them. For you and I, it might be, really? I'm going to have to give up things? I'm going to have to reorient my life around his purposes, not my own. I'm going to have to listen to him, not myself. I'm going to have to deny my self-gratification and follow him. I'm going to have to have pain now, glory later. Really? Some of us don't believe it. Some of us don't even want to want to believe it, right? Because that would mean our whole life would have to change. Do I really want to lose my life? Well, here's the truth. You will never follow him in his suffering until you see that he who was glorious on top of the mountain comes down the mountain, sets his face for Jerusalem, and then is crucified on a hill, a small hill. He who on the mountain was lit up and glorious and beautiful and shining will be eclipsed in total darkness on the day of his death. Until you see that when the voice came from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him when he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hears nothing. Silence. Until you see that that's him who died for you, that he goes first, that he suffers first, that he takes the real loss. We lose our lives, but... He took on eternal suffering on the cross. He took on the wrath of God on the cross. Until you see him go from the top of the mountain to a small hill for you, and you see him as glorious and beautiful, you won't do it. We won't do it. Because it's not captivating enough. Until we redefine our lives around the cross, we just won't do it. But the beauty is, is that he goes first. The Son of Man must suffer many things. He could have gone up, right? Assuming he could have gone up with Moses and Elijah and just disappeared, but he doesn't for you, for me, for the people of God. He goes down the mountain. Let me encourage you, church. It's meant to be hard. It's meant to be hard. Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow him. It's not meant to be easy. If you're finding it hard, it is hard. 
That's why Jesus took his disciples to the mountain to encourage them because it was going to get really hard. And they lived a life of hardship and pretty much all of the disciples were murdered for their faith. It's not pretty. It's not glorious. It's not nice. It isn't just a tack on to your life. It just isn't. It's pain now, but glory later. Because one day, Jesus will come again in a cloud, the Bible says, radiating the glory of God. And one day, he will gather us and we will be in heaven with him. And one day, there will be no sun in heaven because the very light of heaven emanates from his body, Revelation chapter 5 tells us. And one day, if you put your faith in him and you lose your life now and you walk the way of the cross, one day you will sing for all of eternity, worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's beautiful, isn't it? The suffering comes now, but the glory comes later. It's meant to be hard. And that's why this passage is here to encourage you. Jesus is the glorious, suffering saviour. And in order to truly follow him, you need that vision, you need that truth imprinted in your mind, just like the disciples would have had burned into their eyes. I'm going to invite us to pray now and plead with God that he would help us because we need this message really badly because we're never, as a church, we're never going to do it unless God changes our hearts and gives us grace. And then communion, we're going to have communion together as a church and ask for more grace from God. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you want to take communion, make it your first time. Take Christ as your Savior and your Lord. But why don't you pray with me now? Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. Help me to see your glory. Help me to believe in your son, Jesus. Help me to lay down my life to follow him. Give me a heart to believe eyes to see. God, give us a glorious vision of your son, Jesus, and help us to follow him all the days of our lives, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.